I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. The arrest of a pregnant woman with no criminal convictions reveals a technology that may be doing more harm than good. This is the Portia Woodruff story. Megan, I'm so excited. I am seeing you tomorrow in person for the first time in, what, three months? Yeah, we did not plan our summer as wisely as we thought we did. We we had like a camping trip on the calendar, then we had to move it. We still have it in the fall, but we need to coordinate vacations again next summer and time because this was too long. But I can't wait for our date night tomorrow. Yay! Yes, I am very excited. And we will make it a working dinner for sure. (laughs) No, we won't, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Okay. Megan, today's case is definitely, well, I'm going to say this is probably not a case you've heard of because I had not heard of it. In fact, I learned of this case because it came up on my newsfeed in August, 2023. There was a New York Times story on this case. And this is one of those where The story and the woman involved provides the foundation for us to discuss a much larger issue. And I have to say, I know one of our recent episodes, I said I found a new area of work I'd like to pursue, right? Bringing dogs into prison. Yeah. I think this episode, I've now found a new area of research. And I know you've been also thinking about new areas of research. I have. um, Yeah. You'll be my co-author. Let's uh, collaborate on something. All right. Take the lead. All right, so let's get into today's case. I have very little information about Portia, but in fact, her background may not be as relevant here as we see in other cases. And I think you'll see what I mean. Okay. Now, during the time of the event we will be discussing, which is early 2002, Portia was 32 years old and eight months pregnant. She lived with her fiance and two daughters, age six and 12, in Detroit, Michigan. By all accounts, it seemed that the family lived a quiet, normal life. February 16th, 2020 was a normal day like any other. Portia was busy getting her two daughters ready for school, except on this morning, she heard a knock at the door. Now, she was surprised by this and a little bit confused, especially when she opened the door to six police officers who were asking her to please step outside. 
Now, these officers informed her that she was under arrest for robbery and carjacking. Whoa. Yeah, she thought this was a joke and that someone was pulling a prank on her. There's this woman just getting her kids ready, very, very pregnant, and they're telling her she's being arrested. She says, you know, she had no idea what they were talking about. She was quite shocked and told her children, you know, go get the fiance, let him know what was going on. Things moved quickly. Portia was handcuffed. And while her children watched, she was taken by police car to Detroit Detention Center. Now here, she was questioned for 11 hours about a crime that she continually insisted that she had absolutely no knowledge of. Whoa, you said 11 hours and she didn't have an attorney with her? She did not have an attorney with her, Megan. Okay. In fact, I'm not sure if she had asked for one or not. That wasn't available in anything I looked at. But regardless, I mean, she was very pregnant and she was in this situation. During her questioning, they took her phone and they began to search it for evidence. And despite her late pregnancy, she was placed in a holding cell where she was forced to sit on a concrete bench for several hours while the police continued their investigation. Whoa. During this time, she said she began having contractions along with having several panic attacks because she had no idea what was going on. She was scared, uncomfortable, and obviously very stressed out. Oh, yeah. Finally, after what felt like a very long, stressful time, Portia was released that evening on a $100,000 personal bond. After leaving the detention center, her fiancé took her straight to the hospital where she was diagnosed with dehydration and given IV fluids. In addition, her and her unborn child had an abnormally low heartbeat. Now, this is probably because of the stress she was put in, and she mentioned she had panic attacks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Luckily, however, the baby and Portia were physically okay, and the two went home. Okay, so what exactly happened here? Did Portia commit a crime, or was this a giant mistake? I'm going to say I know which way I would guess on this one. What would you guess? But I just have a feeling a woman who is eight months pregnant in total shock in front of her family probably is a mistaken identity. Oh, let's see. I mean, to figure this out, of course, we need to go back. So let's go back to an evening in late January 2022. This is just a few weeks before cops arrived on Portia's doorstep. Keep in mind, she would be about seven months pregnant now. Okay. So on this January evening, police received a call from a 25-year-old man who reported that he had been robbed at gunpoint at a nearby liquor store. The man had told police that he had picked up a woman on the street earlier in the day and that the two had been drinking together in his car. He explained that they had had consensual sex in a liquor store parking lot. I guess romance is not dead. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, (laughs) jeez. After which, he says they drove to a BP gas station to hang out for a little bit. And then she asked him to drop her off at a spot about 10 minutes away. So he said no problem. And he drove the woman to a spot. When they got there, there was a man waiting with a handgun. And this man, along with the woman he was with, took the victim's wallet and phone and then stole and fled in his car. Days later, the police arrested a man who was driving the stolen vehicle. In addition, a woman who matched the description given by the victim dropped the victim's phone back at the same BP gas station where the two had been hanging out. Now, I have no idea why. I don't know if she felt bad or if she didn't want to be caught with evidence, whatever the reason is. This is a big deal because the police were now able to view the surveillance footage at the gas station. Right. And guess what? This cameras at the gas station were actually working and the footage was available. That's so rare in our stories. I know. I feel like in so many of our cases, we're like, well, there were cameras, but they were broken that day. Right. Or the footage was taped over. Right. So far, it looks like we have some good old fashioned police work. A crime analyst was examining the video to try to get clues to the identity of this woman. 
this crime analyst ran a facial recognition search of the woman in the video. Okay. So the Detroit Police Department used a facial recognition vendor called DataWorks Plus, and they would run unknown faces against a database of criminal mugshots. The system would then return matches that were ranked by their likelihood of being the same person. However, Megan, while much of this is done via digital algorithms, a human analyst is ultimately responsible for deciding if any of the matches are a potential suspect or if they should continue on with their investigation. Now, in this particular case, the Detroit crime analyst told investigators Portia Woodruff's name. So, Amy, I'm assuming, uh, based on what you said, that Portia's picture was in the system somehow. Yeah, so this was based on a match to a 2015 mugshot for which she'd been arrested for driving with an expired license. Now, I wanted to dive into this a little bit because at first when I read that, I said, hmm, you could be arrested for driving with an expired license. That seemed like an extreme punishment. I, I was just going to say that. OK, but driving with an expired license is essentially seen as the same as driving without a license. So in many states, the penalty can be quite severe. Wow. So like most of our laws, depending on the state, there are some differences. Now, some states will give a ticket. Some will give, you know, just a fine. Most states, you will earn points, but there are several states in which you can be given jail time. And in fact, in Michigan, driving with an expired license can result in up to 90 days in jail. Wow. Okay. Now, I don't think we can ignore the fact here that Portia is a black woman. And I'm sure you've heard the term before, driving while black. I have. Okay. So for those of you who haven't, this is a term that I guess it made its way into the public consciousness, I would say sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s, after a national uproar over New Jersey state troopers when they were being found to disproportionately stop black drivers. I'm sure you teach about this report. Well, I teach about stops in general. So just so you know, and I okay. also teach it under like the Terry, the frisk, stop and frisk. Yes. So I teach about actual, you know, stops on the street and then stops in cars. So yeah, yeah. under a bigger umbrella, I teach it. Okay. Well, I teach race and crime, which is why I probably go more into specific examples. Right. But this particular study found that 42% of cars that were pulled over on state highways in New Jersey were people of color. However, people of color only made up about 13% of drivers on the road. Right. And in fact, almost all of these stops did not yield any arrests or any criminal activity. And that's very similar to the stop and frisks. It's almost the same. Yes, mirrors the same almost thing. the same thing. Yeah. And then things got even worse, Megan. After 1996, when the Supreme Court ruled, this is in Wren versus the United States, they ruled that officers could stop for any traffic violation. And this is what became known as a pretext stop. So in other words, they could pull somebody over for failing to put on a blinker mm -hmm. or failing to stop long enough at a stop sign. These are all things that every single driver does every single time we get in the car. Right. But now police could use this as an excuse to pull over drivers. So it was almost a veil for racial profiling. Yeah. So the reason why I bring all that up is because Portia had a 2015 mugshot in the system. Of course, this wouldn't be enough to secure an arrest for the carjacking, right? So right now, all they have is an investigator saying that the facial recognition technology matched this mugshot to the surveillance camera. They needed additional evidence. So they brought in the carjacking victim and showed him a six-person photo array of women who closely fit the description. And one of those pictures was Portia's 2015 mugshot. Now, the point was to see if the victim would identify 
the same person that the facial recognition technology identified. Right. I just want to point out that they were using a photo of Portia that was nearly eight years old. People, especially at that age, like you change what you look like. And they had available her license photo, but they chose to use the mugshot instead. And the license photo was a lot more recent. So I find that to be, you know, problematic. But either way, the victim still chose Portia out of the six-person lineup. He said that was the woman that he'd had sex with and that later carjacked him. Whoa. Amy, Portia would have been seven months pregnant. Did the victim mention that the person who, uh, you know, the defendant in this case or the person that he had relations with and who victimized him was very pregnant? Nope. He did not. And I know some women don't show very much, but if you are having an intimate relationship with someone, I think if they're seven months pregnant, you would maybe be able to tell. I'm not sure. Maybe not. But I think that is a red flag here. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is probably a red flag. The fact that he has not mentioned any type of pregnancy. I agree. But nevertheless, the identification gave police enough probable cause to arrest Portia for the crime. Really quick, do you know what kind of lineup it was? Did they do sequential or simultaneous? Do you know? I'm not sure, but I do know they were using mugshot photos. I mean, they had the phone. I'm not sure they found any evidence on it. So there's no forensic evidence, no, you know, tech evidence. Also, they were using this facial technology, which we'll talk more about, to match to this mugshot picture. But surveillance cameras, like the angle of a surveillance camera and the angle of a mugshot, like it makes me wonder if the investigators more nudging the eyewitness at all. Because at that point, they had in their mind that it was Portia from the facial recognition technology. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there was any unauthorized feedback happening in that identification procedure. This is why double-blind procedures are considered the gold standard because there could be conscious or unconscious feedback when the lineup administrator knows who or who they believe the suspect to be. Right. So as I mentioned, you know, Portia was released on bond, but she still had to attend court proceedings and she was pregnant and she still had to live with the embarrassment and, you know, the stress of this whole situation. Luckily, a month later, in March of 2022, the Wayne County prosecutor dismissed the case against Portia, citing insufficient evidence. What an ordeal for this woman to go through while she's eight months pregnant. Oh. Of course, it's great that they made it right, but, you know, she still suffered here. The problem is, Megan, that she's not the only one who has experienced something like this. In fact, Portia is the sixth person to report being falsely accused of a crime as a result of facial recognition technology used by police. And this is the ones we know about. I have a question. You said she's the sixth person. Do we know the race of the other people who were yes. um, who reported this? Uh, yes, Megan. And that's why it's so important. And that's where our conversation is going, because all six people are black. And now clearly this is an issue on its own because some commentators have talked about the fact that racism often gets embedded in new technologies. In fact, it's called techno-racism. You're kidding. I've never heard this before. That's so interesting. There's actually a show on CNN called The United Shades of America that talks about this idea of techno-racism. I would definitely suggest watching it. Okay. This idea of techno-racism really sits on the fact that technology is less accurate when it involves people of color. And this has to do with both user bias, but also the algorithms that are put in place. Now, before we get to that, I just want to point out that Portia's case is the third involving the Detroit Police Department. And this is problematic because they run on average 125 facial recognition searches every year. And this is almost exclusively on black men. 
So we're talking about more than one every three days. Wow, that's a lot. Yes. In August of 2023, Portia filed a lawsuit for wrongful arrest against the city of Detroit. She also filed a lawsuit against a detective in the U.S. District Court. Now, Portia is alleging false arrest, false imprisonment, and a violation of her Fourth Amendment rights. And this is, of course, to be protected from unreasonable searches and seizures. Portia says that the event was traumatizing for both her and her family, and it has resulted in issues of anxiety, depression, and extreme stress during what she says is already a very difficult pregnancy. Sure. And of course, not to mention that she found the whole situation to be embarrassing because, in fact, she had absolutely nothing to do with the alleged crimes. Amy, did they identify the real perpetrator? That has not been in anything I can find. So I'm assuming the case is still being worked because it is so recent, but I have not seen any information on that. Okay. The Wayne County prosecutor, not surprisingly, considered the arrest warrant in Porsche's case to be, quote, appropriate based on the facts. And this is according to a statement issued by her office. Now, what does this actually mean? We know that in order for someone to be arrested, there needs to be probable cause. Mm -hmm. Probable cause is a very subjective, easy to meet standard, which is basically, you know, reasonable basis for believing a crime may have been committed. I don't think people realize just how low the bar is. So when the prosecutor says that the arrest warrant was appropriate based on the facts, yes, because appropriateness is based on probable cause, which is such a low bar to meet. But probable cause here was established by the facial recognition? The facial recognition in conjunction with the identification. Okay. But as we'll talk about, both of them have inherent biases and issues. Megan, this isn't the only case pending, though, because the city of Detroit is currently facing three lawsuits for wrongful arrest based on the use of this technology. The only other case I want to highlight here because it's made its way into the media as well because the ACLU is involved in a lawsuit. Now, this is a gentleman who was arrested for shoplifting and he had an alibi. He told the police where he was. They didn't investigate his alibi. In fact, instead, once his face was matched to a picture and facial recognition technology, they brought in an eyewitness who picked him out of a lineup. Now, this man was a black man. And he was held for over 30 hours and is also claiming that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated along with his civil rights. And what he's seeking, and we see this a lot, is for Michigan to stop using facial recognition technology. So we see this a lot. Like a lot of lawsuits are not just monetary. They're also to put a halt to faulty procedures. Right. Now, there's a lot to talk about because this case exposes the weaknesses and the dangers posed to innocent people when using this new technology. And Megan, this is where a lot of people are probably thinking, you know, how could a computer be racist? We all know that people are, but not a computer. Well, they're programmed by people, but okay. Yes, exactly. So before we get into that, let's just talk about, I'm going to call it FRT for short, facial recognition technology. Now, this encompasses a broad range of technologies. This could be something as simple as, you know, the software that unlocks a cell phone, right? That's facial yes. recognition technology. Yes. Um, I've heard of kids like trying to unlock their parents' phones by putting it on front of their face while they're sleeping. Have you heard of this? <laughs> really? Yes, it's very funny. 
But it can also, so it could be used for, you know, um, identifying employees. Instead of using swipe cards, a lot of organizations will now use facial recognition technology. I've heard of it being used to identify human trafficking victims and missing persons. And border control, of course, when you go through borders, they now use facial recognition technology. Uh, yeah. So this technology can do good things. Actually, can I tell you one of my favorite? I just have to do a side note here. Do you have Google Photos on your phone? Um. Yes. Okay, you do. Okay. <laughs> I think I've sent this to you before. So, you know, Google Photos uses facial recognition technology. So, for example, it'll have a picture of my daughter. And if you click on my daughter's face, it'll show you all the pictures that she's in. Yes, 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 so, yes. Okay. okay. Yes. So did you ever see the one where in my, it has the little tiles of like all the faces and one's yes. like a baby doll, you know, <laughs> so it like thinks a baby doll is like a, a real child. So I find that hilarious. And then my other favorite one is you could search by like items. So you could say like, I want to see bridges or I want to see cats. Yes. So if you search, I want to see ducks on my phone, it'll show you pictures of ducks from like when I was with the kids feeding ducks. But it also shows you a picture of a poncho sitting next to a rubber duck. <laughs> Your dog. Yes. Dog. Yes, my old dog. So my point is that facial recognition technology is not perfect, right? Sometimes it gets things wrong. Or this could also tell us that you have too many photos of ducks, <laughs> which is weird. Me too. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I, everyone knows I'm technologically challenged, but James was telling me about a feature that he has as well in Apple Photos that uses facial recognition. But in terms of him, it groups him in like three different phases. So there's a <laughs> there's a version of him that's when he had heavier. <laughs> no, when. When he weighed a bit more. Um, so no, he was a bit heavier in that one. Mm -hmm. Then there's like the version of him where he went full on like beard scruff, you know, COVID, <laughs> like not as groomed. And then there's him now. It, it breaks him into, you know, three different like time periods and looks. It's interesting. And I'm glad you brought that up because that also shows us the issues here because it was using a picture of Portia from eight years ago. Yeah. So maybe her hair was different. Her face was different. Her makeup right. was different. The right. angle was different. Mm -hmm. She weighed less or weighed more. Right. So yeah, that shows some of the issues. So as with most of technology, technology could be really good and used in positive ways. However, it also has the potential to cause a lot of harm. Traditionally, FRT identifies facial features such as the position and shape of one's nose and their eyes. Um, it also will measure the distance between features to create what's known as a digital face print. So I guess we could think of a digital face print kind of like a fingerprint where it could be, you know, matched from individual to individual. And then an algorithm sets out to find a matching face print. Now, there are many types of FRTs and some may only return a one image match. But many produce almost like what's considered a lineup of possible matches. And then the user must examine to find the best match. Now, does this sound like anything to you? This sounds a lot to me like the issue we have with simultaneous lineups, meaning that the investigator is looking at this computer generated, pretty much a computer generated simultaneous lineup to see which right. face matches the best. Right. And of course, as it does with lineups, this opens the door for many biases. This case terrifies me, Amy. I'm literally sitting here like, what would I do if someone showed up at my door? Like we have you captured and you're under arrest. I cannot imagine the absolute panic this woman must have felt. Megan, this should alarm you because I found research that says there's a 50-50 chance of any adult in the United States having their face attached to their identity. Ugh. And I'm not talking about if you have a criminal record or a mugshot. In other words, 
Amy Soschberg, if you look me up in some government system, there's a 50-50 chance that my face is associated. And that could be from, of course, DMV, passport, or even just surveillance um, crossing borders. Right. So, yeah, it is, you know, something to be concerned about. Yeah. We just flew. And now the TSA is also using facial recognition technology. So I guess you'll see Megan Sachs' face somewhere as well. It makes you wonder, though, like, what if people get, like, plastic surgery? Remember uh, that? Actually, remember the case we covered recently of the woman with seven faces? Yes. Right there. So, like, this, it's interesting to see, like, how plastic surgery might affect this or not affect this. Now, there's several reasons why there's racial bias when it comes to these technologies. So for one, recent studies highlight that many of these systems are just simply less effective at identifying people of color, but also identifying women. This could have to do with simply just camera settings. So I saw the most fascinating documentary, which I was going to talk about at the end, but it's relevant here. It's called Coded Bias. It is on Netflix and it explores the fallout of a media lab at MIT after a researcher discovered racial bias in facial recognition technology. Basically, she's a darker-skinned woman, and she found that this technology could not detect dark skin. In fact, when she looked into this camera, it didn't detect her facial measurements, but she put a white mask on, and it detected all of her features. Oh, my gosh. It's shocking. I think everybody needs to watch it because I never knew there was a such thing as algorithm bias. But these computers and these programs are built by humans and humans have inherent biases. Right. And then you have, you know, the AI is often, quote, trained using non-diverse faces. So therefore, you know, you have it's almost like a perfect storm. Why is it trained using non-diverse faces? Is this because it's being like developed in labs, colleges? Like what's the non-diverse reason? Yes, Megan, that is exactly right. For example, MIT, like a college like that, which would have a lower percentage of people of color working in the labs. A lot of the research that is done to develop these programs are done on white faces and particularly white male faces. So again, there's issues with both race and gender here. So if you're talking about a black woman, FRT is the least accurate when it comes to darker skin black women. Okay. And this documentary shows you all the data on, you know, lighter skin to darker skin, male to female, and the percentage of a correct match. This is absolutely frightening. You know, I never would have realized this. It's only as, well, I never really thought about this, but only as you're going through this, I realized why the non-diversity because of representation in some of the settings where they are developing this. So this is extremely problematic and it's just getting worse as we see this technology being used more and more. So you talked about Detroit, but do you know how many police agencies across the country are using it or how often it's being employed? Is it certain to a specific geography? Uh, Anything? That is a great question. And unfortunately, there's no comprehensive data as to how many law enforcement agencies use this technology. But according to the Pew Research Center, a single provider that they were working with said that it has at least 3,100 U.S. law enforcement agencies as their clients. And that's just one particular data provider. So I think that could give us an idea that this stuff is being used. And I think the problem is that the courts don't ever examine or they have yet to this point examine the role of FRT in establishing probable cause. Because before an officer can arrest an individual, of course, the Fourth Amendment requires that the officer have probable cause to believe a person committed a crime. But the courts have yet to decide whether or not 
FRT constitutes probable cause. So it's also not coming in then, I guess, as evidence at a trial? It can be, but I think it's more important when it's used as an investigative tool and it's not used in collaboration with other evidence. Like in Porsche's case, without this technology, their case falls apart because they use the technology to make the lineup. Right. I, I guess the reason I was asking, I'm just wondering if it's past the Daubert and Fry standard yet as reliable evidence in courts, you know, in conjunction with other evidence. And I obviously this cannot be the sole piece of evidence in a case. This yeah. would have to be one of several other pieces. Yeah. And I would imagine that as this technology gets older, there'll be more research and there'll be more court cases that can set the precedent for how we will view this technology. Mm -hmm. Now, several other countries have adopted this technology and they have for, you know, several years for various purposes. For one, I know in Japan, they used to have facial recognition technology on their cigarette machines. And they were using this as a way to avoid having underage people purchase cigarettes. Now, the problem they found with this iteration of facial recognition technology is it was only 2D. So kids got smart and they started going to the cigarette machines and holding up a picture of an adult to the camera. <laughs> and then the cigarettes would come out of the machine. Innovators, so, innovators. Right, right. I know. But, you know, then there's some countries like China and there's some real concerns from civil rights groups and privacy activists because in China, in a lot of places, in order to use public Wi-Fi, you have to take a picture of yourself. And then the government has a database of everyone's face and they use that even to like going to like a subway. They'll use like their face to scan in. And right. I'm sure our listeners from other countries have a lot more examples of how this is working in their countries. Yeah. The good news is reforms have been attempted in the United States. For example, last September, U.S. House lawmakers introduced a bill that would regulate law enforcement's use of the technology. And they noted that, quote, a lack of greater transparency and reasonable limits on its use threatens American civil liberties. So I'm glad to see that this is an area that I think people are starting to really think about. So I'm, I'm glad to see that there is some policy or attempt at policy reform in this area, because I think it does need to be regulated. This might be OK to use as an investigative tool, but I think that corroborating evidence is needed. And the corroborating evidence cannot simply be another eyewitness because do you remember the researcher Gary Wells? He's like the leader of eyewitness identification research. Of course. Okay. So he's made some comments on this technology saying that pairing facial technology with an eyewitness identification should absolutely not be the basis for charging someone for a crime. He continues that even if a similar looking person is innocent, an eyewitness who is asked to make the same comparison is likely to make the same mistake that the computer made. Right. And again, that's what we saw in those two cases, not only Porsche's, but that other case, that man that was held for 30 hours. Right. The algorithms are created with human input. So the computer is making the same exact identification issues that people make. One other issue that I think this story brings up is the way in which women are treated and particularly black women and how they're mistreated by law enforcement. In this case, Portia was a pregnant black woman, and this brought up many stories of pregnant black women who have been mistreated when in police custody. One that comes to mind for me is the horrific case of Lanika Michelle Brown. I don't know if you recall this one, but she was a pregnant 37-year-old black woman who was found dead in a Mississippi jail after she complained to officials that she was having stomach pain. 
Now, apparently her cries for help were ignored and unfortunately she passed away. And then there was another case of a young woman named Rihanna Cleary who was just 18 years old and she gave birth while incarcerated without any medical help whatsoever. And apparently her calls for help to prison staff went unanswered and her baby passed away shortly after the baby was born. I did not know that one. I'm not, you know, unfortunately, I'm not surprised, but I'm horrified. Yeah. And that's what I hope all of our listeners are horrified by this. You know, we're women in crime, so we're focusing on how this facial recognition technology is being used in the criminal justice system. But there are a lot of civil cases going on right now with how this technology is being used, for example, in like the hiring field. There's a company called HireVue where they do video um, interviewing and assessments. So they're like a vendor that companies can hire. Okay. And they were illegally collecting facial data during video interviews. So in other words, they were you would go on a video interview and they were collecting your data and they were using your data to grade people based on facial recognitions. <sighs> and they were able to give the company like this person based on their facial recognitions, they would or would not be a good candidate. And not surprisingly, they also found that not only did they not get permission from users, that the data was extremely biased, both against females and people of color. Yet another reason to be terrified. Thank you, Amy. Jeez. Yeah. I would urge everyone to watch this documentary. Again, it's called Coded Bias on Netflix because it was so eye-opening. Actually, Ethan was watching it. My eight-year-old son was watching it with me and Alan and like asking all these questions. And he was a little bit confused and didn't fully understand it, but he was definitely like you could tell the wheels were turning and he was like very surprised that this exists. Well, that's good for him to be aware of these things, you know, at a somewhat young age, and especially given what his mother does for a living. Yes. So I think the action items for today, Megan, are educate yourself on this idea of algorithm bias. I think we're going to see a lot more cases in the future surrounding this issue. And if you're interested, you know, you can donate to the ACLU. So the American Civil Liberties Union They're working on this issue, along with many other organizations as well. Wow, Amy, thank you. This was one I learned so much today. I didn't know about this case, and I really didn't know about this technology and the dangers of it. So I feel a bit more enlightened and terrified. But thank you for that. Thank you for the great um, explanation, too, of how this has come to fruition. Well, I appreciate you all joining us today. But Megan, we are not done just yet. We have one question today. Love the questions. Yes. The question is, do you think that labeling theory creates a higher level of recidivism in both sexual and non-sexual offenders? The answer to that would be absolutely. While labeling theory is, you know, not considered one of the mainstream theories, I think it's highly applicable, especially with people who are have a criminal record and those who are coming out of prison because of the label and the stigma it absolutely probably leads to reoffending and other behaviors because they simply cannot escape that label and they're not ever given really the chance to so yeah i i 100% think so amy what are your thoughts i agree and i think the issue i guess it's relevant to what we're talking about today technology makes this all the more difficult because unless you're one of the lucky ones who can afford something called reputation management services where they could wipe your digital history clean then you know unfortunately getting a record expunged you know you still have that label because people can easily find out the news stories or 
anything attached to your name. We've just talked about this in a couple of recent episodes, too. When I did Michelle Hadley, I talked about even yes. the fact it was a false arrest. She had explained this to employers. When we covered Alice Siebold, Anthony Broadwater came out with the label as a sex offender and knew that he was not going to be able to survive or get employment. So, yeah, I think it's highly relevant to a lot of the cases that we cover. Yes, we really appreciate that question. We love when you bring theories into the question. That's our um, actually I think labeling is one of the I love labeling theory personally. I know you said it's not as popular in criminology, but it's one of my favorites. It's not that it's not as popular. It's not considered mainstream, which is why when we have conferences, you know, positivistic theories, I won't geek out too much, but the traditional ones that are sociological and explain why crimes are committed, the causes are considered mainstream, whereas labeling and like critical theories, mm-hmm. they don't and they don't explain why crime is committed. They explain why it was ever considered a crime or someone was labeled in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's more of a branch of critical criminology, which is not considered mainstream and was developed later on in the field of criminology. I think it's much more yes. applicable now, but I was just explaining that difference. All right. Thank you for clarifying. All right. Well, that will end us for today. And we hope you will join us next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include the New York Times, ACLU, the New York Post, NBC News, Washington Post, Democracy Now!, Pew Research Center, Detroit News, and Coded Bias on Netflix. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.